Amen. Open your Bibles this morning to the book of Luke, chapter 14 in the New Testament. Luke, chapter 14. And uh, I have to say, I was in youth ministry for about 11 years, and so I'm really used to getting blamed for things. And so when Kathy said that, I figured it's nothing new, nothing new. I've been around before, and so I'm used to getting the blame for things. I'm also married. I'm not saying there's any direct connection to that. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Woo, that got an interesting response, man. I thought if there was fruit, y'all would have right at me there. So just kidding, just kidding. Uh, Luke chapter 14, we're going to go there in just a moment. Um, And I do want to just kind of start, kind of get our mind rolling in the right direction. Uh, We've been talking all month of January uh, really about kind of 2020, but more than just a resolution. And we started talking the very first Sunday that more than making a resolution that is based in emotion or that's based in the calendar changing over and I want to be quote unquote a better person or I'm going to do these things. And it's kind of this more of an emotional decision than it is really a a resolution or a commitment. Uh, We said rather than make a resolution, we want to be a living sacrifice. And so rather than just, okay, I'm going to make this commitment to be better in this area, we're going to say as followers of Christ, no, I want to be surrendered in all areas as a living sacrifice unto Jesus Christ as my Savior. And so we talked about that. Then we talked about, well, what happens after that usually is you make a commitment, you step out for Christ, you're, you're fired up, you're passionate, you're excited. And usually somewhere in that time following, either your own inward voices, that own flesh that rises up against us, or maybe some external voices will begin to try to remind us of our past or remind us of how we can't, or, you know, you've said that before, you've said before you're going to do this and you never did it. And so we have these kind of discouraging voices that begin to pull at us, or we're not, maybe it doesn't look like what it should look like for someone else. And, and we're kind of walking on this journey and we're maturing and we're not quite where we want to be, but we're obviously not where we were, praise God. And as we're walking that out, we might get some kind of criticism from people around us, even maybe in the church, out of the church, in our families, wherever it might come from. And one of the hardest things about maintaining or keeping a commitment to Christ could actually be the criticism of other people. Now, we were clear on this. We're not talking about loving voices that are trying to coach us up. That's not what we're referring to when I say criticism. We're not talking about people that we have allowed influence into our life. We've, we've opened a door to them and we've said, Hey, I want to, I want to walk with you through this Christian life. Would you, would you walk with me and encourage me? And, and maybe that person or persons that you've gone to might say something they don't like. But you understand because there's a relationship, there's a dynamic there. You kind of understand, okay, this is not what I want to hear, but I know this is a coaching voice, not a critical voice, even though what they're saying may not be what I want to hear. However, there are also those in our lives or in our area of influence who are just critical. Uh, We've given them no open door. We've not asked them for their opinion. We've not asked them for influence, but yet it seems like it comes. Now, we know that's part of living in this world, right? Uh, Most of you have worked at a job where somebody has criticized you for something. Now, what do we do? We don't stomp our foot and throw a fit, okay, when somebody criticizes us. We do some things. We talked about the second week of January. We look in the mirror. Okay, is what they're saying true? Like, do I need to make some changes here? And I'm speaking again, specifically in the realm of just our Christian life, okay? Our follower of Christ type life, okay? And so is there something I need to change? Do I, maybe I need to hear what they're saying. I didn't ask for it, but maybe God could still use this in my life in some way. Now, that doesn't mean we'd seek out critical voices, 
okay? And I've always used this illustration. If I was really, really, really hungry, I mean, I, was, I hadn't eaten in like 20 minutes and I was really hungry. No, just kidding. If I hadn't eaten in a while, okay? Some of you are like, I had breakfast and a mid-morning snack and I could go again right now, okay? Okay, so now you're thinking about food. Don't do that. We've got like three hours before we dismiss for lunch, okay? So don't go there right now. Just don't even think about it. Any visitors are like, did he just say three hours? Three hours? Honey, what did you get me into? No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to go to three. We're going to go to 12, okay? But when you think about this idea of, well, if I'm really, really hungry, man, if I went to a dumpster behind a restaurant, I could find something to eat. Now, it's not ideal. It's not what I really want to eat. But I could find, if I dug around in the dumpster enough, I could find something to eat. But if I was really, really hungry... I wouldn't choose to go to the dumpster. I would go to the grocery store. I would go to the restaurant. I would, I would go where I would know I'd get good food. I wouldn't want to dig around in some garbage and hope to find a small little morsel of something that might somewhat satisfy me for a moment. And sometimes we need to understand that when we have critical voices in our life, it doesn't mean we don't say, okay, God, I'm not looking for that, but I'm still going to be open. If you want to speak to that, that's fine. But that doesn't mean we keep going back to that same voice. You need to understand this. Just because somebody wants to speak into your life doesn't mean you allow them to speak into your life. Because some people, you shouldn't give influence in your life. Some people don't, don't have the right heart when they say things. And so, again, do we rip on them and condemn them? Nope. That's not your place. You don't, you don't need to criticize them. Well, I know who you are, so that's good. Get right down on their level. That's, that's encouraging. No, no, no. We say, God, you know what? Self-check. I need to do a self-check. Is there something in this that I need to understand for myself? Are there some changes I need to make? But then I need to understand, but I'm not going to necessarily go back to that voice. I'm not going to condemn them. Lord, it's not my call. I love what the Apostle Paul did when he faced moments like this. He would just try to, to encourage and edify everyone. People in Corinth are mocking him and criticizing him, and you're not even a real apostle. Why should we even listen to you? Who are you anyway? We're going to go ahead and follow Apollos. He's better. He speaks better. He's more charismatic in his preaching. He's a better teacher. I don't know, whatever they would say. His style of preaching I like better than your style of teaching, Paul. And Paul doesn't get mad. He doesn't get defensive. He just goes, hey, me and Apollos, we're both just farmers. We're just planting and watering. God gives the increase. We're just all co-laborers. He didn't say, well, Apollos is down here, and I'm an apostle up here. He didn't criticize Apollos to make himself seem better in the eyes of the critic. He said, no, 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 we're all co-laborers. God's in control of this. And so when we make that commitment and voices start speaking out against us and trying to criticize us, we do a self-check. If, if our heart is where it needs to be, God is working in our lives, we just keep moving. We don't let it weigh us down. We don't let it kind of discourage us. But then we talked last week, now that we personally, individually, we're committed as a follower of Christ, we know Christ our Savior, we're a living sacrifice, that's the desire of our heart, we're not going to get it perfect all the time, by the way. Praise God for grace in our lives. But we've made that commitment, we understand criticism will come, we're praying for discernment over coaching and criticism voices in our lives. And then we look at the big scope of things we talked about last week, the church, big, big picture. That we as a church desire to be a kingdom-focused church that loves God, loves others, and loves to serve. But we can't start big church to individual. We can't start with the church and then work to me. I have to start my heart surrendered to Christ, my heart individually surrendered to him and his authority over me, his word over me. I'm desiring to be a, a follower of Christ first and foremost, and that leads to together collectively us being the church that we can be in this world. It doesn't start church to me, it's 
me as an individual, to us as a gathering of believers, which is the church, which will lead to us being the right kind of church. And so we talked about all that this month, but I want to look at one more aspect of this and kind of tie it all together and hopefully give us some application of how we can continue to live out this week those last couple parts of our mission statement, to love God, to love others, and love to serve. And I want to encourage you this morning that you can make a huge impact in your area of influence, no matter what you think your weaknesses are, your strengths are, your inabilities. God can use you if you will surrender to him as a follower of Christ and say, God, I'm going to be a living sacrifice. My will, my mind, right? My body, it's all yours. It's all yours. And again, this is where in a sermon like this, some of us might be tempted to think about someone that we know that is a Christian that isn't doing that. Uh, You know, preach it, brother, because sister so-and-so needs to hear this. Preach it, because brother so-and-so, his body's not very surrendered. I don't know, I just picked one of the three, okay? Be very careful here. Because I, I understand that we're all in different places spiritually. I understand we're all at different points. And if you're looking around you in an area of influence, you say, you know what, man, there's some immature believers in my area of influence here. There's some people that aren't quite where they, I think they could be in Christ. Then instead of going, oh yeah, I get them, preacher, it's, no, no, let's, let's pray for those individuals to get into God's word and grow. What does Peter say? To grow in the knowledge of grace, right? To grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, rather. And so we don't need to kind of think about other people right now. This is about you and the Lord, that relationship. God, how are you working in my life? And so to get us going down this path, I want to ask a couple questions to help us kind of remember some things here. And so if you can answer with a raised hand, that's fine. Okay, I'm not going to call you out or ask you to share a story. But if you want to answer with a raised hand, it's fine. How many of you remember walking in first day of middle school slash junior high? First day, middle school, junior high. Remember that day. How many of you remember that day? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you, or I should say this way, were any of you like new kids, like you switched schools in middle school, junior high? Raise your hand. You were a new kid in middle school. Okay. <clears throat> How comforting is that feeling? Walking in, first day, middle school. How about this? You ever walk in the cafeteria, first day in middle school, or the new kid? And you got your little tray and your little milk carton and you're just mm, ready to go because school lunch is so good, okay? And you come in and you walk in, okay? And I don't know what shoes are now. When I was a kid, it was like, you know, the awesome like Air Jordans. Okay? You're all geared up, ready to go. And you look up and what do you see? A mass of kids. And it seems like they all know each other. And if you're the new kid, guess what? You don't know anybody. I mean, what are you going to do? That feeling you get in the pit of your stomach when you're in a situation where you don't know who to sit with, what to say, what to do, where to go, that, that awkwardness you feel, that lack of familiarity. Now, some of you are like, you know, I went to a school where I was in the same school from kindergarten through 12th grade. I never changed. I never had that feeling. But maybe you had a feeling where you walked into a situation where you didn't have a friend, you didn't have someone to be with. And so you walked in literally brand, like you didn't know what to do, where to go. Maybe it was a work thing. Maybe it was a school thing. That feeling you have, I want to remind us and encourage us that, that that's how people can feel coming into a church. And it's nothing, listen, hear me now. Hear me now. Because again, we start going, oh yeah, well, it's not the church. Hear me. Now, some churches may, may be more discouraging to new people coming in than others. I don't know, but... 
But I'm just saying, it, it's that feeling we get when we walk into something new that's not familiar to us. We don't really know what to do. And if you're by yourself, man, those feelings are amplified. And, and you don't know. You sit down in this chair and you don't really know what you're supposed to do. You don't really know where you're supposed to go. And you kind of this awkward feeling. I want to encourage you. People can feel like that walking into churches all over this country. And so I want to encourage you, as we talk about first surrendering this way and then being the church God wants us to be, I want to encourage you that you can come to church just as you are. Just as you are. You don't have to clean yourself up or get this right or do whatever. You can come to church just as you are. But I want to encourage you, don't come to church just as you are alone. Now you might say, well, what does that mean? What I'm saying is, obviously we can come to church alone, but I'm saying our goal should be we should want to bring some people with us. We should want to bring some people with us. Let me ask you a question. If I walk into that middle school cafeteria and I'm the new kid and I'm standing in my chair and I'm like, oh man, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And I see some friends over here. Maybe I just met a couple kids in the hallway that morning. I can go and sit down with those kids and guess what? I, I still feel a little like unknown, but I've got someone there with me. I've got some friends. I've got a connection. there. I've got someone I can kind of watch them. Okay, how are they getting through the day? How can they encourage me to kind of get done what I need to get done? Now, I know for some that might be kind of a silly illustration, but as I was thinking through this, it was the only thing that came to my mind. The only illustration I could think of that I was like, man, what is this going to fit into for us? And so when I talk about don't go to church alone, what I mean is when you're inviting people to come with you to church, and that's a huge difference maker in their lives because now they're not walking into a place with no familiarity. No, they don't have any knowledge of what to do, where to go, where to sit. They walk in, they go, I'm going to go look for so-and-so and I can sit with them. And I have that comfort there. And so I want to encourage you this morning. We need to come to church just as we are. And you can come just as you are. But our goal should be that we should desire to try to come not alone, try to come with someone else. And so I hope you're kind of following and tracking with me here as we go to Luke chapter 14. Because I think this doesn't just apply to we should desire to not go to church alone. We should really desire to not go to heaven alone either. And again, we'll unpack this more and hopefully we'll get some clarity here in what we're looking at. Luke chapter 14 and verse 15. And when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then said he unto them, A certain man made a great supper and bade many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. So understand what's going on here. Jesus is at a dinner. Someone at the table makes a comment and says, Man, you know what's going to be great? is when we get to have bread in heaven. When we get to sit and have a meal in heaven. Jesus begins to tell a story. This is also called a parable in the Gospels. A parable is just an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So it's an earthly story. It's something we can all relate with. This case, dinner, okay? We can all relate with dinner, okay? We all get that. But he's trying to use this story to point out a spiritual truth, okay? A spiritual truth. So Jesus is saying here, he says in verse 17, that there was this guy, or verse 16 and 17, there was this guy that put on a big dinner. He put on a grand feast, and he sent his servants out to invite people in. He says, okay, the dinner is ready. Okay, the dinner is ready. In my house, there is no greater sound, no greater joy than when Sandra is, looks her head around the corner, and we're getting stuff around after church, let's say today or any other time, and, and she just says, hey, dinner's ready. Oh, man, I get excited. Mm, 
good stuff, right? I come around the corner and you just smell. You know the smells I'm talking about, right? You guys are like, you're being really mean right now. You just told us not to think about lunch and you're talking about smells of dinner. So this idea, we understand this. He says, hey, it's all ready. Dinner's ready. Go get the people. I want them to come to the feast. It says in verse 18, and they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground. I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have, a, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Hmm. Just going to let that hang out there for a minute. It's not the first guy that said, dude, I can't go. It's not going to work. Um, Verse 21. So all these excuses are coming in, okay? All these different reasons. And by the way, are some of these good excuses to the people that are giving them? Are they justifiable excuses? Hey, I, I, I have these five oak, yoke of oxen. I've got I've to test them. I've got to prove them. I can't make it. Okay, it sounds good. goes on to say this in verse 21. So that the servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. Let's pray. I know Pastor Greg has already prayed, but let's pray and ask God to open our hearts and minds to his word this morning. Father, I pray you'd give us wisdom, guidance, and direction in all these things we've read. I pray that you would make us aware of the truth in this parable, that we would see what you're trying to communicate to us. But I understand, Lord, that the only way we can know these truths is by the working of your Holy Spirit, that when we know Christ, we can then discern your word, and I pray that you'd make it known to us. Father, I, I do truly thank you for... Uh, this church. I thank you for where you've planted this church, where you've put us in this community and the time at which we exist. I believe this is not by accident, and I believe this is by your plan and your will that we are where we are when we are. And I know sometimes we think, man, it'd be better if I could have lived back here or I could be back over there. or if, If we lived in a different time, it wasn't so crazy. But Lord, I believe that you've called us to be in this moment right now, in this time, in this culture, And I pray that we would not run from those things, but we would look for opportunities to engage those individuals that we come in contact with, to engage the world around us, not to compromise, not to change our convictions, not to change who we are in Christ, but to see the opportunities that are around us as people are so full of fear right now, so full of uncertainty and doubt. I pray that we would come to them with the message of hope, not in us, not in my way, not in someone else's way, but in the person of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you'd be glorified in all these things. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, we see a picture into the heart and mind of God. Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. We get to reach out to those around us and share this amazing news. So what's the amazing news? The amazing news, if you're taking notes, real simple— You're invited. You're invited. You are invited. In this parable of these people that are being invited, 
that he goes out in the streets and he starts compelling people to come in. I want you to know you're invited. And you might think, well, yeah, but I don't have anything to bring to the table. I don't have a dish to pass. I don't have anything. I'm not, I don't have anything to offer. All I have is weakness. All I have is failure. All I have is defeat. I don't have anything to offer that's worth anything to God. You're invited. You're invited just as you are. You're invited to come and join our Savior at the table. We call this the parable of the great supper. The parable of the great supper. Again, a man puts on a banquet and invites certain guests. If you notice, there's specific people that are invited at the beginning. All of those individuals give excuses as to why they can't come. Some have believed this could be those in Israel that heard the news of Christ, seen Christ, and rejected. More specifically, it would be maybe the Pharisees that, that were of the mindset of that dismissed Christ at the very beginning. They wanted nothing to do with him. And so all the reasons they thought he wasn't the Savior, those are the excuses why they won't come to the meal. This is not all of Israel. This is obviously not all of the Pharisees because we see Nicodemus in John chapter 3 come to Christ, have a conversation, and many believe receive Christ. So it's not saying all of Israel are these guests. These are the ones that saw Christ, had knowledge of Christ, rejected Christ, turned away from him, and refused the invitation to come. The host tells the servant to just go invite literally anyone. Anyone. Go out into the streets. If they're out there, if they're available, just get them here. Just invite them to come. Even those that are crippled or poor, which would be in that society, those who are looked down on by the Pharisees or the super elite religious crowd. Now, I want you to understand something in this parable. We are not the host in this parable. We are the servants inviting everyone to the feast. Now, why are we the servant inviting? Because we've been invited. If we're carrying this illustration, this story a little farther, we've been invited for whosoever, Romans chapter 10, verse 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Can I tell you, I'm so thankful it says for whosoever. It's not for this class, for this people group, for this gender, for this financial status, for this nation, or nationality rather. It's whosoever. We're all invited to come. And once we've received the invitation, we've received his grace, we've received salvation, now we are given the blessed opportunity to invite others. The servant says, it's done. If you see that there, he says, it's done. I, I, I went out and I got the crippled, the poor, the maimed, anyone and everyone that was, I got them here. But there's still room. There's still room. The house is not yet full. What does the master, the host say? Keep inviting because I want my house full. This is an illustration of inviting others into a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It is a picture of those that are part of the family of God. Those that have received the invitation is the illustration of those who have received Christ. Now, however, while it is speaking of salvation, I believe it is also speaking and applied to our understanding of the church. And here's what I mean by that. Since the church, those that are saved, is the body of Christ, 
that will be with him in heaven. And so when we're inviting people into that relationship with Christ, I believe it also applies to inviting people to gather together as the body of Christ. Because the body of Christ, the church, are those that are saved and will be one day with him in heaven. Now we're going to talk about the other aspect of how that gets kind of played out with the church and those kind of things, but we're going to stay with this understanding right now. And so what does that look like? That we get to invite people to relationship with Jesus Christ. We get to invite people into the church. We get to invite them into that continual relationship. So why is this so important? Why does this message need to be shared? Because not only are you invited, but they're invited. They're invited. Not just you, not just me, but they're invited. Look at Luke 14, 23 again. And the Lord said unto the servants, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. I got to tell you, there's not really a more beautiful understanding of God's desire than that phrase right there. There's two kind of ways that Christ says in the gospel something that I think just really impacts the heart of Christ. My house will be filled. I want my house filled. Then he says in John chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. He's saying, I want my house filled. I want to be with you. God's heart, his desire is that all would come to repentance. That God is a missionary God. God has never been a God that is okay and content to just say, okay, I've got you handful of people here. Let's all just kind of hunker down and bunker down together and we'll be good. The rest of the world, forget them. Not going to worry about them. I've got this little remnant and I'm good. No, constantly through the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is a missionary God. He is a God that desires to reach the world with the message of Jesus Christ. And we see this in the book of Genesis. We know the story, right? Genesis 6 through 9, Noah's ark. There's this, the world is in sin. God sends a flood. Noah, his wife, and his family, and their, his boys and their wives are all saved from this. They get off the ark, okay? God reminds him of the covenant he made with Adam and Eve. Here, go do this thing. I want to know you. I want you to go fill the earth. I want you to, to be blessed. And Noah goes out, and what begins to happen? The people join together, Genesis chapter 11. We see the Tower of Babel being erected. They're not spreading out through all of creation like God said. They're coming together. They're full of pride and arrogance and boasting. And look at what we can do. And the Bible says that God sends down language to confuse them, that they cannot communicate with one another. Then it says he dispersed them through the world. Now you might think, well, man, that's, that's kind of anti-missionary. Like, why would he give them language and then spread them out if he wants them to know him? Then you meet a guy named Abraham in Genesis 12. And he says, I will make you a blessing. And your family, I'm summarizing, you'll be a blessing to the whole world, to all the families, all the people groups of the world. And from that line of Abraham, we see the person of Jesus Christ. And from Abraham forward, it was all about tell the nations, tell the nations there is one God. The story of David and Goliath. What did the Philistines say? Mocking David. Mocking their gods. And David said, that's not going to happen. There's one true and living God, and we will make him known. That's missionary. 
The story of David and Goliath is not just about some surface understanding that you can overcome giants in your life. God will give you victory over those things, but that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is God will be God over all nations. God desires that all people groups would come to know him. See, his desire from the very beginning is to be known by his creation and they would know him. Here he says in Luke 14, 23, my house will be filled. The imagery of his house is used by Christ in John 14, 1 through 6. I referenced that already. John 14, 1 through 6. If you look, go there with me real quick. I wasn't going to turn there, but let's go ahead and turn there. John 14. Okay, John 14, verse 1. Thank you for bringing your Bibles with you this morning. And let me just interject here quickly uh, that if you don't have a copy of God's Word uh, with you, maybe not on a device or in paper form, please don't feel weird about that or awkward about that. Uh, We want to give you a copy of God's Word. And so if you go to the Welcome Center following the service today, you can just say, hey, can I get a Bible? And the person working the Welcome Center would just give you that Bible. No questions asked. No issues. No nothing. Just give you that Bible. Uh, If you have a phone or or something like that with you um, and you want to get it on your device, you can download our church app, North Goodland BC, in your app store, and you can download that. There's a Bible feature on there as well. And so if you want to even do that now during the service, you're not going to offend anyone or bother anyone. But uh, we want to get into God's Word together. And so I want you to see what God's Word says when we gather together. It's not about my opinion on God's Word that matters. It's about the Word of God changing hearts and minds. And so John 14 and verse 1 says, Let not your heart be troubled, be fearful or anxious. Not going to be full of anxiety. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there's that imagery again. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. And here's that phrase I was referencing, that where I am, there you may be also, that relationship. And whether I go, uh, you know, and the way you know. Thomas says unto him, Lord, we know not whether thou goest, and how can we know the way? Again, I don't think Thomas was being doubtful here. I think Thomas was wanting to make sure, if you're going there, Jesus, I want to be with you. I think Thomas wanted to know, can spell it out for me. I like Thomas. Thomas is like me. Look, don't speak in metaphors or riddles or just A to B. Tell me how to get there, okay? And look what Jesus says. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. It's not about religion. It's not about good works. It's not about being this or that kind of person. It's about trusting in the person of Jesus Christ. Because I am the way. Now, two things here. Really, three. Either Jesus is truly the Son of God, and his words are true, and he really means, I am the only way. Which I think if we as believers believe that, we'd live our lives just a little bit differently. Maybe a lot a bit differently. I think we'd be a little more passionate about sharing Christ if we really believed he was the only way. So either he is the only way, he is true, and he's speaking truth. He was a lunatic. He was literally insane, believed himself to be the son of God, and was just mentally impaired to the point where he could not understand he wasn't. Like literally hallucinating or, or having this schizophrenia-type situation where he really believed he was the son of God, so he was just crazy. Or three, he was just lying. He was just lying. He just made it all up. 
And I challenge you that if you're skeptic at all about the person of Christ and you're like, I just don't know if I believe all this, I challenge you to get into the word of God, read the words of Christ, study what happened after Christ ascended, study what happened in the early church, and then you tell me, based on what you see in Scripture and what you see the disciples doing, which one of those three the disciples believed Jesus was. Because the people that lived with Jesus for over three and a half years that could have taken the body if he really didn't resurrect all died a martyr's death. That tells me they believed the first option, that he really was the Son of God. And so we have a choice to make as, as individuals today. Who do I believe Jesus to be? And so here we see this invitation is given again. We see an illustration of this in Luke chapter 14. Now we see it again in John chapter 14. But I want to focus on that phrase in verse 2. In my Father's house are many mansions. In my Father's house are many mansions. Now, if you have a different translation, uh, you may have a translation that translates the word mansion to rooms, to rooms. The key in this passage, however, is not the type of dwelling place we will have in heaven. Man, people have gotten so worked up over that over the years. It's, it's, it's amazing to me because if you just understand context, that's not the point of the passage. It's not the point that we should dwell on. The key in the passage is not the type of dwelling place we will have in heaven or for eternity. The key is that the word literally means, the word, this idea of house, literally means to abide, to dwell. To abide, to dwell. So why does that play into our understanding here? We will be able to abide and dwell with Christ forever by his grace. Amen? You will be with Christ forever, dwelling and abiding in the very presence of Christ. This word for mansion or room is also, and I'm sorry, I think I said house means to abide and dwell. That idea of room or mansion is what means to abide or dwell. This word for mansion or room is also used in John chapter 14, verse 23. It is really the only two places in the New Testament, actually, that this word is specifically used. So we see it in John 14, 2, in John 14, 23. John 14, 23 says, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Same word. Make our abode with him. So why do I point that out? Because that is amazing reality of our eternal existence with Christ. He says, I want my house full. I want you where I am. I want you to abide and dwell with me forever. Those that received Christ and his word, just as he is, he will dwell with us just as we are. Those that receive Christ and his word, just as Christ is, I don't have to change Christ. I don't got to make his word different. I'm just going to believe by faith, through grace, you are who you say you are, God. Lord Jesus, I believe in what you say you, or in who you say you are in the word of God. I'm not going to change it. I'm not going to make it something different. I'm just going to believe you just as you are. The beauty of that is that he comes to us and says, and I will receive you just as you are. If we receive him just as he is, not changing him to make what we want, he will receive us just as we are. We as followers of Christ must be as passionate to invite others into that relationship with Christ as Christ is to extend, extend it to us by his grace. 
So why should we be so passionate about inviting others into this relationship? Why should we be so passionate to go out into the highways and the byways, according to Luke 14, and compel them to come in? Now again, speaking about coming into that relationship with Christ, first and foremost, but also compelling them to come into his church. Why should we be so passionate about this? Why should we care so much about this? Go to Luke chapter 13. One more passage. Luke chapter 13. And then we're going to wrap up in just a moment. Luke chapter 13. So we were in verse four, chapter 14. We read about the dinner illustration there. But in Luke 13, we see another using of this idea of a dinner feast. So Luke chapter 13 and verse 22. Why should we be so passionate to invite? Because the door to the banquet will not always be open. The door to the banquet will not always be open. Luke chapter 13, look at verse 22. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem, this being Christ. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, verse 24, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When once the master of the house is risen up and hath shut to the door, and ye begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us, and he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence you are. Then shall you begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence you are. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are last which shall be first and there are first which shall be last. That's a lot going on in this passage and I know it may seem confusing and I always encourage this. Please study this for yourself. But when you see this here, I want you to, to hear the words of Christ for what they really are. We can't change his words. It is what he says it is. They ask the question in verse 23, is it really just going to be a few that are saved? And to read all of Luke, you'd understand more of why they ask this question. Really just a few that will be saved? Now, why are they saying this? Because they, like us, want many saved want many to know the joy and the peace of Christ, want many to experience heaven for eternity. None of us really want anyone to suffer separation from God in a place called hell. That is not what we desire for anyone. And so these guys are like, man, is it really just going to be a handful? Now, understand what they're saying when they say a few. They're saying in comparison to the whole world. An amazing teaching that Christ gives on salvation in this passage and one that must be heard. You can see in this passage when he is speaking to Israel, and he was in their streets teaching. He was in their villages. He was with them in the flesh. And people have said, if I could just hear Jesus teach, then I would believe. If I could just see a miracle of Christ in the flesh, I mean, Jesus literally raising someone from the dead, then I would believe. And the truth is, no, you wouldn't. Because it happened, and people denied Christ all over the place. See, he was with them in the flesh, teaching and preaching in the streets, and yet they rejected him when he was standing right before them. However, when he is raised up, people will then realize who he was, who he is, and they'll want to seek salvation. Jesus is clear. He will tell them to depart from his presence and to, quote, weeping 
and gnashing of teeth. Jesus says that in the scope of all of humanity, few will be saved. Few will be saved. Not because his gospel and his grace is not sufficient. Please understand this. Somebody not receiving Christ has nothing to do with his inability to save them. It has everything to do with their personal choice to reject him. See, the grace and the gospel are sufficient, but because there will be those that reject him and the time they were given to repent is up, their time is gone. Jesus is very clear here. There will come a point where you will no longer be able to enter in. That's Jesus' words, not mine. So why did they wait? Why, when you, when, when you think about it, why did they just wait so long? In Luke chapter 14, why all the excuses? Why not just receive Christ for who he is and experience the joy of salvation? Why wait? Well, I believe for some of the same reasons that they waited then is the same reason people wait today. I want to give you three quick things why people waited then and why people may wait today, and then we're going to close. And I really do mean they're going to be three quick things. So why did they wait? Well, first of all, salvation is difficult. Salvation is difficult. It requires sacrifice. Jesus says it requires walking a narrow road and a narrow gate, not the wide and easy road of the world. You see, the believer sees the blessing in walking the narrow road, but before Christ, it is not very appealing. This is why somebody that doesn't know Christ will say things like, well, I don't know if I can become a Christian because I have to give up all this stuff. I got to give up all these things. I got to give up all this stuff. But the believer in Christ realizes, man, anything I gave up for Christ, he more than overwhelmingly supplied what I needed. That the things I lost in coming to Christ, I've gained so much more, eternally received blessings from Christ. But before Christ, we don't necessarily see that. Understand that? We don't see that. We see it as, man, this is a restrictive road. People will even say, man, I, my problem with salvation is it's, and with this whole Jesus-only thing is it's too restrictive. It's too, it's too exclusive, right? Like you're, you're automatically writing off all these people that don't know Christ. Ravi Zacharias says it best, and I, I really can't say it better. Truth, by definition, is restrictive. Truth, by definition, is restrictive. Two plus two is four, Brown City Education, but I got that one. Two plus two is four, okay? That's a restrictive truth. You can't just come in and go, well, I think it's 17. I think it's 26, you know, just because I feel that's how it should be. No, truth is by definition restrictive. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me, that's restrictive. But those of us, that have received Christ, not by anything we've done. We're not better than anyone else. We've just received his grace. We've realized there is great joy and peace in his restrictive truth. That the things that exist outside of that would only have caused me damage and harm anyway. The things that I think I will give up, when I give them up for Christ, I'll find more peace and joy. So first reason people wait is salvation is difficult and apparently restrictive. But secondly... I believe the people in Jesus' day had a false sense of security since Jesus was with them in the flesh. They had a false sense of security because Jesus was with them in the flesh. And I truly believe this happens today in the form of this false sense of security we get from going or being a part of a church. Now, remind myself here. Earlier, what did I say the church was? The church, by definition, is the gathering of those that know Christ. 
But in our culture today, there is this mindset that by going to a church, I become a follower of Christ. However, the truth of the scripture is when I receive Christ, I gather with the body of Christ, Hebrews chapter 11, or I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 10, to edify one another and provoke one another to love and good works, to worship him, to lift up Christ. That's why we gather together. As a fruit of my salvation, I gather and desire to be with the body of Christ before the word of God. I don't come to church to be saved. I am saved in Christ. Therefore, I desire to gather with the body of Christ. But in our day and age today, there's a lot of churches. And people get a false security from that. I go to church, therefore I'm good. So they don't actually give in to the call of Christ and receive Christ as Savior. But thirdly, and maybe most predominantly, would be pride. Pride. This is true, especially with the Jews and the two stories that we read. Those that were of the nation of Israel that refused Christ because he didn't fit the mold of what they wanted. They thought they were first. They thought they were best. But Jesus points out that the last, in Luke chapter 13, that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. The last there is referencing many believe the Gentiles, the non-Jews, because Jesus goes to them. And the first, the Jews who were first, become last. We see this exchanging of this position, and it's a beautiful exchange. You see, they depended, these in Jesus' day and age, depended on their ancient religion, but Jesus saw their works as works of iniquity, not works of righteousness as the law required. So what about those that were invited? Let's wrap it up real quick, going all the way to Luke chapter 14. What about those that were invited? Remember our story we started off with? Master sends out the servant. The servant goes out and asks all these people to come, and what do they give? Excuse after excuse after excuse. What does Jesus say will happen to them? Verse 24 of Luke 14. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. You know what Jesus is saying here? Those that I invited initially that excused themselves and, and rejected to come, rejected the invitation, they'll never come. They'll never come. Now, we read that and we think, man, that seems really harsh, but I see that and I read a Savior whose heart is broken. I don't read that as judgment and, and, and a vindictive God. I see that as a God that says with a broken heart and almost with tears in his eyes, they'll never come. And I think it breaks the Savior's heart every time somebody knows the invitation, hears the invitation, has time given to them graciously by God to repent and rejects. And they choose to harden their heart towards the things of God. And God, knowing their heart, says they'll never come. And so what do we do in the face of this great invitation that we've received? Well, I want to encourage you, we invite. Man, we invite, and we invite, and we invite. In our world today, Jesus is inviting so many to come and join him. Jesus is inviting the lost to abide and dwell with him. He is sending out this invitation through the local church, through you and I. So I want to encourage you with something this morning. Let's be excited to invite. Maybe it starts simple. Maybe it's just inviting them to come and gather together to worship. Maybe that's where it starts for you, and that's awesome, that's good, and that's fine. Man, you should invite people to worship with you and to gather and to worship him and, and, and come to church. Maybe it's you inviting someone into that relationship by personally sharing the gospel with them. My call to you is the same call that Christ gives to his church. Will we just get out there and start inviting? Now, let me say this too, because some of you have said, well, I've tried sharing my faith and it doesn't go anywhere. I feel like I share my faith and I just keep hitting these walls. Nobody wants to believe. You're not the one that converts them. You're not the one that, that saves them. 
You're just merely inviting them. And whatever they do with the invitation is up to them. You're not responsible for their response to the invitation. So don't carry a weight and a guilt that you're not supposed to carry. So maybe we're going to close an invitation in just a moment. You're going to have a chance to come and, and bend a knee and pray. And we'll have those in the front here that would love to pray with you. And there's going to be some opportunities to fill out a prayer card if you want us to pray for you. But maybe you would come and you'd say, Lord, there are those in my life. Maybe, as we've been studying on Wednesday nights, maybe there's five people in your very influence that you can invite. Five people that you know or you believe to know that they don't know Christ. They they don't have that relationship with Christ. And you're going to go and you're going to pray this morning for an opportunity to invite them this week. And again, maybe it's to church next Sunday. Maybe it's something simple. Maybe it's an opportunity to share the gospel. Maybe you would come and pray and say, God, give me an open door and give my heart a passion for sharing the invitation that you've so graciously given to me. And that's what I think to you. Maybe you have not received the invitation for yourself. Maybe you're sitting here today and you've never personally received Christ as your Savior. Then the first thing I would encourage you to do is to pray, God, give me wisdom in this. Open my heart to you. And if it's the cry of your heart to receive Christ, you can do that this morning as we close in prayer and spend time with him, asking him to be your savior if God is leading you to make that decision. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Father, as we come before you this morning, we ask that we would first and foremost be so thankful and excited for the invitation that you've given to us, that you've allowed us to come to know you as savior, that somebody at some point in our life invited us into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe it started by them inviting us into a church. Maybe it started with an invitation to a Bible study or to a a kids event. Maybe it started with an invitation to VBS or something like that when we were kids. However, we received that invitation. We that know Christ received it, discovered your grace and truth that you love us so much. And we found salvation, not in the things we do, but in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So maybe this morning, Lord, as we are reflecting over our own salvation, that we would be thankful and praise you for that great gift, the invitation to receive Christ, and that we know you. But Father, I pray for the one here today that has that burden on their heart to invite someone else. Maybe they already know who their five people, or maybe it's just one person. Lord, it doesn't really matter how many, but we just are aware that there's opportunity. And so I pray that we would ask for boldness and courage to be, to be faithful, to share your truth, to invite, because, Lord, the invitation you've granted to us is glorious. That if we will receive you, we will spend eternity with you and you with us, forever in your heaven, forgiven of all sin. But, Father, I pray for the one here this morning, maybe, or the one listening to this recording that has heard the gospel many times, maybe has grown up in a a church that preached the gospel and they've rejected it. And time and time and time again, they reject your gospel. I pray that they would know, Lord, that you've given them this time for repentance. But that time will not last forever. And there will come a point when the door will be shut. And I pray that they that hear this message will will not wait till it's too late, but they will respond to your salvation and trust in you, find forgiveness of their sins, and know that they have a guarantee of heaven. Father, may you lead God and direct in all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? As you stand, we invite you to respond to whatever God is doing. Maybe you want to come and pray, uh, husband and wife, individual, mom and dad, whatever. You want to come and say, God, thank you for the invitation I've received. 
Help me to be faithful in inviting others into relationship with you and into the church. However God is leading, would you respond to him as we pray?